RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. It is likely that at some point you might have committed the highly intimate task of licking the reverse side of one of my guest's designs. David Gentleman is the undisputed doyen of British stamp design, having clocked up 103 sets over four decades. But as this interview reveals, David Gentleman's body of work is varied and considerable, and many might be surprised to learn that the same hand that produces exquisitely delicate watercolours evoking the British countryside is also responsible for the hard-edged graphics that adorn the posters and flyers for the Stop the War coalition demonstrations with their blood-splattered immediacy. At 80, Gentleman still makes his daily journey up the three flights of stairs to the top of his house, where his studio has been for five decades. He epitomises the classic freelance solo designer, but a designer with a truly personal signature to everything he creates, an increasing rarity in this digital age. I spoke to him at his home in Camden. Well, David, this interview takes place in your 80th year, and I don't want to rub that in, but it's a very good age, and it's a terrific age to still be working when many other individuals of that age would long be retired and wandering around on the golf course. But graphic designers and illustrators and artists tend not to do that. They tend to carry on. Your career has spanned, well, I guess, 50 of those 80 years easily. A good, a good, a good fifty. A good fifty. I mean, it really. Uh, if you count my two years in the army when I was eighteen, that's uh, sixty-two years ago. Then I had a, a brief interlude while I was at the Royal College. And then I was working from nineteen fifty-three onwards. Looking back at, the, at that length of time, I mean, the fifty years or the over fifty years of working professionally, uh, and you're indeed your eighty years. Does it seem that long now? It doesn't. It's gone. Uh, it's, look, well, looking back on it, it all looks um, uh, well compressed. You know, I can't believe it's so long. Well, during this anniversary year of yours, you, you've illustrated George Poet Evans' Ask the Fellows Who Cut the Hay, and that publication coincided with an exhibition at the Fine Arts Society, I think, in March this year. That's right. You also illustrated five other books by Owen Evans. How did that relationship come about? Well, I'd done, illustrated a book for Fabus, also about Suffolk. It was called um, Suffolk Prospect a year or two earlier. And a year or two earlier, Bertolt Volpe at Fabus, a marvellous designer, had asked me to illustrate a book by a Suffolk writer called Justin Brooke. And uh, Faber had... Well, so I'd, I'd done a book about the countryside already. And I think this probably... 
tempted Faber to ask me to go to Suffolk and uh, meet um, George Ewart Evans, who, um, and to illustrate the third of his series of books of sociology come oral history about the his adopted Suffolk. He was a Welshman, but he and his wife came to Suffolk after the war, and um, his wife, Florence, taught in the village school and earned the family's income while George wrote the books, which were marvellous books, very, which gained him a tremendous reputation as a pioneer of oral history, but he, he didn't make him rich. So um, Florence, um, I think, quite selflessly wrote, um, um, taught in school, earning as well as an income. She earned the, this, the right to occupy the schoolhouse, mm -hmm. and that's where they lived. And so when Faber um, asked me to do the, the book, I went to stay with George and his wife and met his youngest daughter, Sue, who happened to be around there at the time, and we got to know one another, and I later married her. So it was an important connection. So you got more than just a commission. More than <laughs> clearly. Well, let's just <clears throat> wind back over those uh, 80 years to your childhood and the young David gentleman. Now, your father, Tom, and your mother, Winifred, were both artists. Many of the people that I've interviewed have not had that creative background most of them haven't at all you you indeed did they were both they both studied fine art i think they met at glasgow they were painters they were uh, painters yeah. and later your father transferred over to 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 more commercial illustration he did. and design but uh, so uh, how did that affect you as a young i mean because quite often when a parent is a musician or a sports athlete or whatever it can actually do the opposite it can actually it can my own father was a absolute sports freak consequently i can't stand sports so i'm just wondering if you had art all around you how did that manifest itself in you and and sort of inspiring you or well i think it, it really i think i don't know about inspiring me i think what it really most fruitfully did was just it enabled me to or or pitchforked me into um, a household in which art or drawing and painting were not so much objects of veneration but they were simply what one did and so the, uh, when my father wasn't working at Shell in London he was at home digging the garden or painting and these things seemed to me as as um, equally automatic things to be doing. So, so when you were at a young age, were you sketching in little sketchbooks? Were you no, recording well, the world around you? I or? did. I did. Um, no, I don't think I was. I mean, I I amused myself with with um, drawing and painting from time to time. I don't think I was. It was just one of the one of the things one did. It wasn't. Um, I didn't until much later think of it as as my main thing. Um, and, and indeed, when I was at the school in Hartford, I thought I was really quite divided in my plans between uh, one time I w wanted to become a journalist, but um, when the time to settle, uh, um, when I was 17, whether to, to head for university or to, to the nearby art school, I planned for the art school. And that was at St Albans? That was right. And so how did that, suddenly transferring into an art school environment where you're meeting other sort of like-minded individuals how was that for you how did you find that transfer from the grammar school well i think after the grammar school it was a liberation because i'd been modestly diligent 
student at the schoolboy at the grammar school. I mean, I wasn't interested in sport, but I, I liked drawing. I got quite a good art master, and and when he went off to the war, his wife took over from him. So I was all it was encouraged, and my parents were very uh, encouraging too. But I didn't. They never made me feel that it was their ambition that I should do this. And I don't. Um, I mean, I don't really think it was. But then I, and I stayed at school and, and into the sixth form, which I'm I'm quite lucky about because the the class then was a very small one, and it was two or three of us who really had a lot in common. But then I went off to St Albans, which was a lovely place. It was a 12-mile cycle ride or an hour's bus ride away. The uh, people were there were um, lovely. They were themselves all straight out of school and doing something they wanted to for the first time. It was really a very heavy atmosphere. And would they have been drawn from the area or from all over the place? They would have largely been drawn from the area from St Albans itself, where there was a good school. But from that that hole, I suppose, um, probably a 15-mile radius around it. So you I were do- there for, what, two or three years? No, I was only there for a year, because oh. um, at, the, at the end of the year, I had to, to go and do national service. Oh, of course. So that would have been the late 40s. That was so 48. 48, yes. so you would have been, what, 18 years 18, old? 18, yes. And you and had to do the two-year compulsory. I did. So it's now it seems to me, reading about that, your national service in your national service, you ended up as a sergeant, um, and you were in, you were responsible for the education art room, which I must say <laughs> sounds very relaxed and a bit cushy. I mean, it, that that's it was an amazing, <laughs> amazing fluke. How did you manage to? Well, the um, beforehand. I hadn't been in the the um, cadet corps at school, um, and I'd been always uh, antipathetic to the idea of going into uh, national service at all. But I didn't I didn't try to get out of it. Um, I just uh, thought this was something that had to be undergone. But I had no idea. I thought it would may, maybe it would be nice to learn to drive in the army, or somebody told me why don't you try for the education corps because then that way you become a sergeant very quickly wanted then or since to be a teacher but I learnt the I went to the Army School of Education in Cornwall and um, did teaching practice and, and things and I liked the people there well enough and at the end of that um, they I was given the chance to stay on in this um, in the School of Education's the basic training the military training on the Salisbury Plain and the training in Cornwall to be an, an army teacher those used up the six months the the latter part of 1948 and then I stayed on um, with an art room which was I was in charge of under a captain called Max Brooker and I just had to do signs or provide visual aids for anybody who needed them or to teach trainees how to design posters for what was they were it was um, called out in the field after they left there and um, I, I did sets for the the um, theatre group and it, it um, Cushy is a very I good word for you did a mural it. did you not did you I did yes you did in, a mural. In, in, is that still I, I, I wouldn't like to, to, to um, think it likely that it's still there. I've never looked it up. But it was in the sergeant's mess, and it was um, it was in four parts. One of them was a, a kind of... Um, it was a very extended, the length of one wall portrait of a Cornish fishing village, Mevigisi, uh-huh. in fact. And the other were... were um, one was of some mermaids, one was of a boat, 
um, sunk under the sea as if one was down on the sea bottom with it. And I can't remember what the third one was. The last in, one. in a strange way, that beginning sort of much, much later sort of reappeared in many of your own personal books, you know, your travel it did, books. Sure. Yes, and um, I mean the, the first, um, the the first big job that I got after I left the college was to, to do a lithograph, which was of a fishing boat in uh, at the at the same little port of Mavagissi. Yes. So, so, so it had its um, virtues. Being it had its virtues. There. I mean, um, I think, but a lot of my contemporaries were doing not exactly the same. But I mean, Quentin Blake was was um, illustrating for army magazines yes. and so on. And I think that it's I can't. Uh, grumble at the treatment I had in the army. I think um, an, another designer, Arnold Schwarzman. I think he, when he was in the, he was doing camouflage. So, <laughs> I think if you were slightly artistic, they would think paint. Yes. Um, so you half, the, half the Royal College staff had been in camouflage during the war. Really? Yes. I mean, the war was over. Luckily, by the time Quentin or I got in. Yes. Camouflage. So you you left the army at the age of twenty. 21, 20, just 20. And then uh, did you immediately go on to, to get a place at the Royal College? I did. I thought, I, I um, pleaded the fact that I'd been doing, I'd only been at art school for a year, but at least I'd been doing something related for another two years. Yes. And I, I squeezed into the graphics bit of the design school under Dick Guyatt. Yes. And um, as he never used to fail to remind me, by, by um, the special intervention of Abram Gaines, who was teaching there at the time. Yes. I didn't like to be reminded of this, because I thought I'd like to imagine I got there under my own steam. But <laughs> Gaines didn't let me forget it. And I think you, Herbert Spencer would have been there teaching. Um, not he, Herbert Spencer came and gave a talk while I was there. Right. It was before he became a regular teacher. And Henry he, and a bit later Henry, as well. Henry and also slightly late. I, I, um, I went on... Um, I, I was given a very... Um, dog's body job at the college after my course had had finished um and during that time henryan arrived and um and uh Ardizoni was around it was a very heady bunch of people yes it seemed to me that period the early 50s was the kind of across the line it was the a little later things changed there was a dramatic change in terms of the approach and the use of photography there were still many people there that were very craft based i'm thinking of you know reynolds stone and then of course you know john nash and and body's only himself and and edward borden Borden. very much in that tradition of certainly i mean it was a tradition that well it, it was quite an old tradition but it had been flourished and and cherished at the royal college in the 30s and paul nash had taught the he had taught um, Borden and Dravilius and um, even when I was at school my dad was was keen on Borden and Dravilius's work and um, there, there were books of theirs in the house at home mm. so they were already my heroes before mm. um, before I got there yes. and, and I after a year under games so I who, I was like games but I didn't I thought that he was too certain that his way of doing things was and the only way to I do think them. it's called ego isn't it <laughs> Anyway, you, you, I you escaped actually, from him. Yes, oh. you did, and you sort of moved across you know, to, illustration. to illustration, yes. which obviously you found your greatest sympathy. Yes. Gra- I mean, it wasn't, it, to. It, wasn't, it wasn't particularly an escape from games, who I liked perfectly well, but it was, I felt a greater, I thought, I thought that I had more to learn from, from Borden, yes. particularly John Nash too, but Borden most of all. So, 
I mean, you, you obviously got very involved in illustration, and it, clearly, you know, your work shows your influences, although it's very much your own signature now, as with many people, they have a hero, they kind of emulate the hero, and then suddenly, somewhere along the line, the hero disappears, and their own personality is very much evident in their work, their mm. own fingerprint in your work, for, for as long as I can remember. It's always been very, very much, I can pick out your work from... 100 yards it's you know it's so immediately you you also started to engrave which is uh, you know it's quite a an exacting task and also it has the the, the difficulty of working in reverse which is uh, which ca- can actually i think offer great surprises but nevertheless it's still what very do you mean do you mean reverse left to right well yes, or, yeah, reverse um, left yes. To right. No, I, I don't i think well, that's the the least of the problems you just you just forget it's left to right and you engrave i mean you not, it's, it's not as if you're engraving from a subject in front of you. But uh, if you're engraving lettering, it has to be. Ah, well, that I, I, I never did. You, do, you never did that? Hardly ever. Oh, wow. All those engravings that I, I'm, I'm thinking of. But the, so that would be in boxwood. Well, hang on. Traditional. I, I'm, I, really, I seriously... Um, I thought you'd done a menu or, or a cover or something with lettering, but maybe the lettering was added in, in a typeface that to, It would have... That was sympathetic. Yeah, I've done drawn, drawn lettering on the cover of Claude Shaw, but yes, not, that, that wasn't that drawing, engraved, not no. engraving. I mean, the, th- the thing about engraving was that it, it was something that I could do comfortably away from the college or in the evenings. Yes. Or, and the, uh, there was a very good teacher who I got a lot of and grew um, very fond of him and his wife, John Lewis, who was came in my second year to to teach typography. And he was a, a, a relatively traditional typography book designer himself. Yes, I remember, was, he, remember. I remember he had the Studio Vista book that he produced. Yes, he, he invented that whole range. Yeah. And, and he did a very, a very good book of his own called Printed Ephemera, this book was called. I've got that, got yes, it. I know. Okay. Yes, and it's, it's is, very it's good. So it's quite it's, ca- interestingly, I mean, that very book, Printed Ephemera, has lots of examples of labels and labels with engravings and, yes. and, and type and so forth. So I expect, even though you switched over to... To illustration, you were still very interested in the process of graphic design, as we would now call it, and typography. So they, they were sort of beginning to. Well, I, I, I've never really had much of a of claim as a formal typographer. I mean, I'm interested in type. I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert. But I, I also did lithography when I was in the illustration school, and the, the first lithographs I did were actually posters. One for the the, the um, a Royal College production of um, uh, for the theatre group of Orfe and this this is a three colour litho and uh, you know that was so that was kind of in the the um, no man's land between drawing and graphics mm. which I've, I have been in for a, bit, a good bit of my life So when you came to the end of your time at the RSA you actually stayed on and taught for I think a couple of years yeah teaching um, is, makes it sound a bit grander than it was my task was to to liaise with the new students who were finding their way about the college which was dotted in different departments over Kensington and to kind of help them along but I didn't I had nothing to teach them you know I was too hadn't learned enough to have anything worth teaching. So you, you were so there for two years and you'd go in every day and basically be showing people around? Well, I, I was, I was, I was um, encouraged to do any work I could get of my own yes. during that time and to do whatever task was needed of me by the college as well. And so that was probably a rather comfortable little period where you could start to put feelers out for freelance work. It was very good. I really, um, I think I got the prestige 
of being attached to the college and a lot of my early work was engravings for things like a lot of penguin and pelicans, some work for advertising, absolutely anything that I could get. And so by the time I left the college, Dick Guyatt said after two years that, well, I'd been given a start, uh, now was the time to go on and get on with it. I mean, that was a time, again, in the 50s when magazines and newspapers were far more crudely printed than they are today. So your particular ability to engrave and illustrate in line drawing was probably perfect for advertisements, sure. you know, top and tail pieces, whatever yes. you might be asked to do. That's right. And in any case, having anything printed in colour, I mean, in four-colour halftone, was unimaginably yes. expensive and prohibitive. But through, I think, really through the connections that I made... Well, I did, did some stuff for the Cambridge University Press early on. There I met John Dreyfus, who was their house designer then and he was kind of effectively designer and talent scout for limited editions club of new york and i went on to do four books for them in that during that starting off during that first decade first of those was a swift family robinson with wood engravings and then other line drawings with lithographed colors yes so it was a good mixture of processes yes and then so i was really after and i also did some watercolors for shell during the first five years now would this would this been during your father's time or is that he, he retired from shell before i before i did anything for them but he, I'm, I'm sure that the, it was the goodwill. They liked him. I mean, he was he was a very likable, a good man. And I think it was he. I think it was his um, the good connection that he had with Jack Beddington, who was the Shell mm. design supremo, that probably got me these early jobs. In fact, your father Tom also produced one of the school prints. That, he did, um, yes. Just after the war. Just after the uh, war, and uh, still very much available. I mean going for quite large prices, but they are available. They were proper um, drawn-to-plate, yes. genuine artist living yes, they are. I think a, a few years ago, probably about ten years ago, a company called Merivale Press unearthed a whole mass of them somewhere. Uh, I think there was a radio programme as well about the history of, of, of how they came about. But that, that also did, also by lithography, he did a children's book of his own called Brave Farm, Yes, and he, you know, he didn't, he, and he painted a very nice mural for a design research unit, yes. an early yes. design group yes. who were doing up a cafe owned by Cardoma, but in Paris. And the theme of this mural was to be the um, tea party in an English country garden, and so events in this mural, which is really nice, quite formalised but nice and recognisable, really are our garden and my family. I think whilst you were still at the Royal College or just after, you worked on quite a number of Penguin covers as illustrated. A little later, you embarked on the Penguin Shakespeare series. Yeah, that was... was well so later. But, I mean, it, it's where your engravings very much came into their own, and you, I think you produced about 30 of those. It's a great pity that they're not still used, I think. you know. But I know there have been different incarnations of... Um, well, I wasn't the first. But I think that those ones particularly are very striking simply because of the they look incredibly modern but using a, a very classical form of the engraving but the way in which you distill things into a, a simplicity even your engravings have a, 
terrific graphic quality that in juxtaposition with the stark Helvetica and with those flat colours, they, they are wonderful. It never occurred to me that anybody would collect my um, or exhibit my work as paintings. Or, but what I wanted to do was it for it to be seen and to have these Shakespeare's covers seen by at least a whole generation of schoolchildren yes. at a impressionable age. Mm. I think that's a wonderful Absolutely. task to have had. And it's partly due to Hans Schmoller, who mm. was, he was the art director at Penguins when I started my first books, really, the year I left the college. And he was a, a very loyal and he was a very good designer. I think he came after Jan Tischold, didn't he? Who, he did, yes. Who, who, and I, I mean, I think that Jan, Jan uh, Tischold had, had set a standard mm. of, of, of absolute marvellousness for Penguins, and that, mm. in which Moller very, very ably maintained. Yes, that's absolutely true. Moving on, still on the subject of your engravings, one of the most dramatic works incorporating your engraving can be still seen at Charing Cross Underground Station, which um, spans the whole length of the platform, telling the story of the Charing Cross itself because of the vitreous enamel. It still looks as pristine as the day it was put up. And that must give you enormous pleasure sailing through there on the rare occasions that maybe you do, but to see it there still, no, I, I it is, it is a terrific it. thing. The, um, it did me, uh, it stood me in good stead with my son when he was a schoolboy who had to go past it every day. <laughs> very good, um, very good brownie points. I mean, you, you, you were talking just a moment ago about your Penguin Shakespeare covers being exposed to many, many young School children and students, obviously, when many of those books were on the core curriculum, you know, Shakespeare works. But I think the other body of work that you must be most proud of is your contribution to British stamps. And you were, in fact, the, the kind of architect of, of what is termed now special issue stamps back in the 60s when I think Tony Benn was the postmaster general and was keen to exploit the stamp division of Royal Mail by perhaps celebrating various events and, and and I know that you had been designing stamps before that time but your meeting with him and your invitation along with others to put forward proposals led to you really being as I say the architect of very much the the series that we see today the same idea of a set of four or five or six stamps on a given theme using the silhouette that you created of the Queen's Head because that I know at the time was a you found it it was rather difficult to use because they originally had a the large photograph of the Queen used in an oval which would seem to swamp. Just tell me a little bit about that argument because I know that that um, it was the changing of one era to another with Ben and the earlier lot, and I think Kenneth Clark was involved with uh, the approval process. He was, as you uh, you were right. I'd I'd done several sets already before Ben came on the scene, and so. I'd coped with the the really very difficult problem of, of putting the Queen's head re, uh, respectfully on alongside other graphic images, as if one were putting both sides of a coin onto the same side. It's not. It wasn't easy, and the fact that it was a photograph and that it was a three-quarter view, so it was a, a, um, essentially a, th- um, a three-quarter view, is a very three-dimensional way of looking at something. It's kind of solid thing. Yeah. Whereas if you reduce it to a profile, it's a little. It becomes a little emblem. I mean, doesn't no, nonetheless powerful an icon for that? But it's it's much easier to sit alongside anything else. So when Ben 
suddenly became postmaster general. He asked, uh, he put out a kind of public uh, request for anybody who had any ideas about how stamp designs could be improved. He would like to hear from And I wrote back with saying, essentially, that I thought they, they'd be better without the Queen's head at all. And that, secondly, that they should have much more interesting range of subjects, which up till then had had to commemorate passing events. Mm. So they couldn't celebrate Shakespeare. They had to celebrate a Shakespeare festival. And which, in fact, you, you did. Which I did. Yes. But, I mean, it was kind of it's, it was a nonsensical yes. situation. Here's, here's the greatest writer yes. used as a vehicle for commemorating some trivial event. And um, I got on very well with Ben once... Um, I, when I wrote this letter, there was about a month's silence, and I thought, oh dear, I've, I've um, suggested too much. But I think in reality it was percolating its way up the inner hierarchy, unbelievably mm. labyrinthine in mm. those days, I'm sure. inside the post office, and very nice civil servants, but, but really totally unaware of anything about design. Mm. And then there was the committee. And when Ben, um, it, when it eventually reached Ben, he rang me up the same day and said, come round and talk. And that was pretty remarkable, you know, having dealt with his, his um, lance corporals mm. until mm. then to go and meet the man. And he was, he was extremely approachable and very interested and keen to, keen to, to alive to the potential for good of yes. stamp issuing. Which, I mean, his, his predecessors... I think uh, there was a guy called Ernie Marples who started up the motorways. He did. Indeed. He, he was. He were, I mean, he wasn't. I couldn't quite see him. He wasn't the same. I've I've always had great sympathy for Tony Benn. I've always mm-hmm. felt that he has. He is someone that genuinely has a an interest in design. It strikes me that he does. He certainly mm-hmm. comes across as that. But I think um, one of the stories that that I heard about, which I thought was rather amusing, is that you had done a set of stamps for the Battle of Britain. And there was um, talk of removing the swastikas on the planes. Is that, is that because it might be offensive to, to well, the Germans? Ally. It was New <laughs> almost like the John Cleese sketch. Yeah. Don't mention, Don't the, mention war. the war. But well, I, b- I believe Ben actually fought your corner. And he did. Um, he, I, uh, the story, as I understand it, is that the Foreign Office had remarked that this was, wasn't the most helpful gesture we could make to, to what had become now a loyal fellow European country. And, but Ben said um, that, that the Battle of Britain was a battle. And, and you, in a battle you have adversaries and... and you can't edit one of them out. Well, I'm glad he kept them because uh, they are terrific stamps still. A very flat graphic. They were the first stamps that were shown to the Queen without any Queen's head on them. And, oh, um, that's right. That's when you tried to <laughs> tried to remove the Queen's head. They, they, they were they were essayed, which in the climate of the time, um, um, essayed or proofed. This was um, to get these through the post office hierarchy of that date. Really, was quite something and it certainly wouldn't have happened without Ben's authority mm. but but um, she is supposed to have said that um, they were and I, I genuinely think she thought she told him that she thought they were very interesting but that on balance she'd like the head to remain. It would be very fascinating to because Tony Ben is a great, great diarist and record he records everything uh, it would be very interesting to know exactly what happened he probably has. Well, it's, it's in the diaries. Oh, it is. A good deal of detail. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. There, there's another 
project that, uh, from a graphic designer's point of view, that's very special, and that's your symbol for British Steel, now sadly long gone, but it did survive for some 30 years, and it was a terrific example of a, a really strong, well-thought-through piece of graphic work. Now, today, for most organizations of that size, you would go through a raft of meetings and reports and strategy. I mean, it would, it would, just, it would just be impossible to think that you could just be given a job and i understand that it was a very straightforward commission at the time you it was and it it came from the the man who was the chief pr person will camp at british steel at the time and i know that they had previously had quite a struggle finding something they'd, they'd gone to dru and I think to other people as well, but hadn't liked what they were getting. And he he asked me to have a go. And um, I did several alternatives. It went through very quickly. This is the the two sort of bent pieces of steel that interlock yes. to create an S. That's right. Yes. Did, what were the other ones like? I didn't realise that you'd had to separate. I, well, did my, you, I mean, did you offer ones. them the best one? I'm sure you did. I, I'm sure you offered them the best one. I would like to think so. Yes. I think I think that the other ones were a bit more in the kind of graphic idiom of the time, which I got very interested in through um, Der Neue Graphik, the um, yes. uh, German and Swiss very spared down typography where mm. i mean i remember one um, that used uh, simply the letters bs or maybe just the counters of the the b and the s so that you weren't even seeing the whole letter mm. and i think that the the big decision was to drop any b out of it and just have an s mm. and i think it works much better mm. and no. it certainly went on for a long time it certainly did i, I once remember being in um Northamptonshire near Corby where there's um, steel uh, steel was um, I might be open cast and it was a very misty morning and I, I'd gone there for about on another job driving through this this um, countryside and suddenly looming out of the mist above me I saw this symbol and as the mist cleared it was on the end of a long digger crane hung oh, up suspended in mid-mist above me. I think around about the mid-70s your, your kind of campaigning spirit started to uh, surface and uh, you produced, I think, a series of posters against the bypass that was proposed at the time to run through Petworth Park. I'm interested to know whether, did they actually put the bypass through no. or not? So so that was um, a very was effective for the piece. Trust. Of, it was indeed for the yes. National Trust, yes. I'm interested in those pieces because, of course, that seemed to lead on a little later to the book that you produced, published by Faber and Faber, called A Special Relationship, where, once again, you were so upset and angry that Britain had agreed to allow the Americans to use our airfields for, so they could bomb Libya, that you created this very, quite vicious book, very graphic, probably the purest piece of graphic work i've seen from you literally no words. broken down no words and just symbolism in flat colors and very very stark and when did because i think prior to that time prior to the petworth park i don't think i've seen anything of yours that was one could call you know being used for campaigning qualities no, that's right i mean the, the stuff the stuff that the the petworth thing 
had um, I'd, I'd done by then quite a lot of work for the National Trust already, and I believed in the, what the National Trust was about. But it was there, it was there um, requirements that I was meeting. Mm. Whereas I felt, as I got older, I, I was uh, getting more more interested in current events I think mm. and I was I'd been on um, immediately after the uh, Libyan bombing which failed to kill Colonel Gaddafi who it was supposed to I um, I'd been on a protest sit down demo outside the American embassy one Saturday and at the end of that I felt I wondered what this had achieved and I thought maybe I could do something uh, more um, make a more personal statement about it. And um, with the aid of the local Pronto print, or its then equivalent, I did about two-thirds of the, of the images that appear in this book off my own bat without showing them to anybody. Right. And, and then showed them to Faber, who, who went ahead with them. Hmm. Well, I mean, we'll skip ahead. Um, I'm going to backtrack as well, but I'll skip ahead. Really, to the Stop the War Coalition organization, which you've been involved with now for, well, it must be seven, 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 seven years. years. And all of those very familiar blood-splattered graphics that one sees at, at the many uh, demonstrations that appear around London against the war in Afghanistan and wherever at the moment are very much yours and so you know you really are now seen as a as a sort of protest graphic designer because that is, has become your own i mean the moment i see that blood splat i know that it's I'm, i'll look and i'll see designed by david gentleman i mean you must be very pleased with that visibility uh, and that it's it seems to epitomize what you've always believed in which is r- reduction getting across an idea in its simplest form is far more powerful than over embellishing stuff well, I've, I've come to think that because, I mean, I started off when I was at the college. I was very interested in Victorian graphics and in Renaissance title pages and things like that, which mm. you can, can't be accused of being minimalist. N- not at all. No. But, but it was really these um, Swiss, Gerstner and Kutcher, yes. that, that made me think there was excitement and marvels to be achieved in, in the, the opposite mm. extreme. And I'd also been on some marches when the Iraq war looked as if it was blowing up, though at that point nobody, I think in the country, thought that we would actually become enmeshed in it. But it looked, it was conceivable, but it was an American thing. But anyway, I went on these marches and one day I saw um, in the papers uh, a press photo off a long stretch of march with people carrying banners and placards which you simply couldn't read. They were the ones that had been produced in any quantity were weren't very um, arresting, and the ones the very nice handmade ones weren't they weren't that readable either. Mm. So I sent Stop the War or CND or somebody. I sent the wrong people anyway um, a poster which I never heard anything back. And then next time I took a bit more effort into finding out who I should send this to and I I wanted it just to say no Mm. because that was the simplest thing Mm. and so and I'd still got the photograph of this march with its illegible banners and I stuck my nose over the march 
getting smaller in the distance, so it really looked very convincing. Mm. And this was, I'm sure, what persuaded them to go what, ahead with it. What you've done in 21st century terms is created a brand for... <laughs> Don't that. I know it's an awful thing, <laughs> but an identity, a coherent statement. I quite agree. I mean, when you see those traditional demonstrations with, with handwritten placards that people... It's just a mess. It's like going into a supermarket where your blood splat is very effective. Indeed, you did have that sort of installation, as it were. I mean, in, hang in, on. I'm very much pro people doing it themselves. No, of course. You know, wonderful ones have been done. Of course. Handmade also. The, sadly, the, the thing is, when you see them on mass, either you get one that stands out or the rest disappear. But I think what you've done is, for something that's very important, you've been able to get that message across in a very immediate, striking way, by repetition of the blood splat. So just the word no with the N in a solid black type and then a blood splat for the O says it all. That's the beauty of graphic design. It's taking the complex and reducing it to its utter simplicity. I want, I want to go back a bit now because that's your more hard-edged graphic work that you're currently still doing. I think you're still involved. I resolved to stop every now and then and then I and then you get pulled back in again. well that's good let's talk a little bit about your more personal work you established a link with Cohen Press a long time ago and they were responsible for producing many of your fine art watercolour pieces over the years and they, they also printed the National Trust posters as oh well, they did so they, you know we were already friends yes uh, so you you have that side, which is very much your personal. You know, it's it, in other words, it's not projects where you are commissioned by a client. It's projects that yourself initiated, and where you're responding to a country, a city, objects you see before you. And of course, you you had the the, the run of books that you produced of Einfeld and Nicholson, the David Gentleman's series, David Gentleman's Britain and London mm-hmm. and Paris and so on, which you wrote as well. So your desire, maybe early to be a journalist, came to fruition with your reportage work. London has just been has just been reprinted. Oh, good! Oh, that's that's Copies very nice. arrived this week. That's lovely to hear. So, I mean, I think in all you, in terms of books of your own, I've got a note here that you had seventeen of your own books and thirty-five books. In, that, are, that are the authorship of other people. I can't believe it's seventeen, but well, that's what I counted. Okay, uh, on your your own wikipedia page but i know that they can be notoriously inaccurate but it seems to be that and i think that includes things like designing miniature and those um books that you wrote about um design as well you've designed i wouldn't i wouldn't claim that quantity no there are there are the six books well no then 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 there are ten there are there are four for children that's ten the two, two or three others. So right, you got right. seventeen. Okay. Uh, and you <laughs> and of course one hundred and three stamps. Or we, Correct. We, we, yeah. So it's a incredible. And of course, your own autobiographical book, artwork, which yes. was published in two thousand and two, which is uh, really for anyone who wants to know more about you in great detail. That's the perfect book because it's from your own. It's it's from your own memory, and um, it's a very thorough. Um, description of everything you've done and with beautifully illustrated of course but like the smaller patent script with book david gentleman design it's very specifically one half of what i do i mean it's the design side exclusively both uh, well there are lithographs in in artwork but not in but there's, there's no comparable 
compendium, as it were, of the of the watercolors. No, I, I think quite a few appear in there, of course, and of, of, sure, yeah, indeed, and yes. the books and so forth. But I know what you mean that, a, that, in fact, a book recording your other other life, as it were, the, the personal. So that, that's one for you to do, obviously. Uh, are you working on any other books at the moment? Um, I'm on the threshold of another book, but there, there, I've got several ideas, and I, I'm undecided yet which to follow most urgently. We're sitting here in your house in Camden, and your studio's at the top of the house, and I think you've been here since the, probably the... 1956. 1956, so all yes. of your work has been done upstairs, I assume, in that studio. Or on the spot, you or, know, on, or, on site. Or on site, um, yes, yes, if you're yes. obviously illustrating. And, and also, about 30, more than 30 years ago, we also bought a small a cottage and then an adjoining cottage, which we knocked through into one in Suffolk. So a lot of, a lot of my watercolours are of things around me there as well. This is your, I think, this is a 17th century cottage, yes? That's correct. And uh, the one without any central heating, but a wood-burning <laughs> stove. Uh, it's a good place in summer and I'm sure spring. it's lovely yeah I'm sure it's beautiful and I mean you obviously have a great connection with Suffolk and I'm thinking to myself whilst I was traveling here today when you're up in your studio here in London do you listen to music I used to but I don't know um, I can well, imagine near you know, Britain yeah. or Tippett or well, evocations of mm-hmm. the British countryside particularly no, well, Norfolk it's, it's and true. Suffolk I, li- I listen to, I, I don't I don't play I don't play tapes I listen to Radio 3 sometimes but increasingly, I've, I find it a distraction. If I'm really up against something, I like a good bit of silence. I love uh, Britain and the, the, the Suffolk, his Suffolk. Yes, how marvellous. The other thing I just wanted to ask you is that, unlike many of your contemporaries who went on to start design companies, to work within other companies, to art direct magazines, whatever they might do, you, you've, apart from that short period of two years where you were teaching, which you, I think at the end you vowed never to teach again, you also vowed never to work with anyone. That's and you, you've... Well, you, no, I mean, I didn't want to, be back, to become part of a team. Yes. For sure. But you've never really worked with anyone, uh, you know, an assistant. I've had an assistant period periodically for shortish periods mm-hmm. but not that um that dried up really because the kind of work that an assistant was any any help with i was i lost interest in because your work is very much you i it's, mean it's, it's very me. much from your hand sure so you can't you can only use an assistant to do the if you like the, the boring mechanical bits yeah i mean the things that i i would like to know how to do them but it's um, i don't find it easy to learn how I yes think. And you don't, I mean... You, I mean, you, you, my, my, the, the Stop the War posters, I got them to um, what I would have thought would be a highly finished visual stage. I learnt how to how to set type on the computer and so mm-hmm. on. But um, I needed somebody else to deal with the overlays, the layers, yes. the, and, and the perfecting of it for yes. the printer. Well, I think we're coming to the end now. Looking back over your very long, certainly distinguished career... Do you have any regrets? Is there anything you would change or anything you you still haven't done that you'd, you'd really like to do? I would like to draw more people. Gradually, I mean, um, the, the, first, the first books about um, London and Britain were, they were fairly thinly populated. I've got, I've got less, I've got more interested in people and, and um, how they look and my grandchildren, how um, I find their... Um, the way they move about and sit much more interesting than I used to. I, um, 
I, I, um, this is uh, this is the only specific thing that I've um, that I would like to um, to do more of now. Sometimes I um, I think I um, I can see people doing work in oil of a kind that you can't do in watercolors because you can't paint light on dark in watercolor, which is and um, beyond a certain level of depth in watercolor, um, you lose the color becomes kind of dry looking. Deep colors in watercolors aren't as deep as they are in oils. And I think it would be nice to that to have that kind of vibrancy available to one. But I have never so far had the had the spare time to really turn to these things. Mm. I don't find the spare spare time easy to come by yet. Well, I hope there's lots of more spare time coming up. David Gentleman, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.